Hi everyone, welcome back to the pod. In case you got lost, you're listening to For Pete's Sake, and I am your host, Rebecca Free. If you've been following along with the pod pretty regularly, then you know from the last episode that I did, I mentioned that I was going to take a couple weeks off just to take a break from everything. And so after that break, I have thought a little bit about the frequency of the podcast and what's sustainable for me. And I've decided to reduce the frequency from weekly to like every other week. So I'm going to try to put out two episodes a month, but we'll play it by ear. I... Yeah, in the midst of my mental health issues and then also some unexpected physical health issues, um, I just had to evaluate where I was putting my time and my energy. And a couple times I was like, should I just pull the plug on this? Is this even worth it? And I have decided it is worth it for me. I really love doing this. I love having the conversations that I have. I love putting this together for y'all to listen to. And it's really fun to get such great feedback from everybody, so thank you for that. And so yeah, I want to keep doing this. Like I said, I want to be sustainable about it, so no more weekly episodes, probably. I guess we'll see. But it'll just depend on where I am able to, or how much I'm able to devote to this process, which currently I need to be working on my dissertation, you know? (laughs) I am working on my PhD and I need to finish that eventually. So that is where my priorities need to be. So this is not so long farewell. This is just, I'm going to be talking to y'all a little bit less frequently. And so with that out of the way, I am really excited about this episode. Um, I got to talk with Bjorn Robrook, who is an assistant professor at Radboud University in the Netherlands. And I was excited for this interview. (laughs) Kind of uh, superficially, because Bjorn is my first non-North American on the pod, so woohoo! That's very exciting. So for y'all outside of North America, here's someone from the Netherlands for you. If you're not from the Netherlands, well, (laughs) sorry about that. Um, And I, yeah, we got to uh, talk about some cool plants. I asked some impossible questions, like, please tell me about all the plants and peatlands ever. And Bjorn was a really good sport about it, so I appreciate that. Uh, Some of you may know that I don't know very much about plants at all. I study water quality, and so as my undergrad advisor would always joke, plants are kind of just like terrestrial algae, and that's pretty much how I think about things. So it was nice to talk to someone who's an expert in the area. Um, Hopefully will help me with my plant ID next time I'm out on the peatlands. And I'm excited about that. Uh, Later in the pod, we even chatted about the evolution of careers. And then we talked about disturbances and reclamation efforts on peatlands in the Netherlands. So we kind of went all over the place and had a really nice conversation. Um, Another fun connection that we had was, well, I live in Utah, and Bjorn told me that he named his puppy Utah after visiting a couple years back, which is super cute. I've never thought of Utah as a dog name, but if you don't live in Utah, naming your dog Utah in Utah would be kind of weird, but if you don't live in Utah, you should consider that one. 
And when I told my partner this, he said I should have said, what a coincidence, our dog is named the Netherlands. But that would be lying, Scott. Come on. So here we have Bjorn Robrook from the Netherlands talking about peatland plants and some other things. Hope you enjoy. Well, the first thing that I always have my guests go through is like where your where your peatland story begins, how you got interested in this, because it is a, a niche thing to study and to dedicate your life to. So if you want to go ahead and talk about that, like your background with education or if you have an earlier interaction with peatlands and that. Yeah, so my 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 name is Bjorn Robroek. And I'm an assistant professor at, uh, at uh, Radboud University in the Department of Aquatic Ecology and Environmental Biology. Yeah, like um, I, can, I grew up in the south of the Netherlands and uh, this is a little bit of a hilly part of the Netherlands. So it's not very famous for its, uh, for its peatlands. And um, so at, at high school, I, I, you have general biology classes and I always, I was very much interested in, in animals all the time. And uh, there was not so much plants. And um, yeah, but we went, we went out for holidays very often to, to an area which is called the Hautfagne, which is in Flanders, in, uh, in, or uh, actually in, uh, well, in, in, in the province of, um, uh, what's it called in English, like the Wallon country in, uh, in, in, in France, the French speaking part. And there is, a, there is an area which is called the Hautfagne. And that's in a, that's a peatland, and um, my parents were always terrified when we were going there because there were always horror stories of people uh, who got lost in these areas, and uh, and and I found it really interesting, and uh, I started to, to read some books about also um, some mythology in uh, in 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 that area, and uh, that also uh, contained stories of that um, of that of, of that particular peatland and people getting lost and you know these stories about misty areas and uh, you can't track back your way and then people were found in these areas so one was never allowed for you to go there but it, it was always a bit of a subconscious thing like it never really inspired me to research them and then after high school I went to university and uh, actually I wanted to become a vet and um, then I got one of my one one of the first things at at university was having plant lectures, and it completely captured my interest. I found it so interesting that I completely forgot about studying veterinary sciences. I stayed in biology, and then I needed to go and do my uh, research internship. And one way or another, I came across a landscape ecologist, uh, Baudouin Beltman, who's like still a little bit of a mentor for me. And um, yeah, I started studying sphagnum mosses and the competition between sphagnum mosses, and that got me that got me really going into uh, into peatland ecology because yeah, once once you once you're stuck with sphagnum, it's so interesting. Like there's so many things which we do still not know, and it's it's still a little bit of a black box how they how how sphagnum mosses function and how they how to interact with with other with vascular plant species, or but also with microbial um, um, species, and so how they shape uh, the peatland systems, and um, so that really, yeah, that inspired me very very much. So that's how I got into it a little bit. 
that's really cool that you had that early experience um, younger and then it kind of came full circle a little bit in your education. And it always, these kind of stories always come back as when I, when I was living in Southampton in the, in the UK, like we had a, we had a, um, we had some field sites in the region of Manchester and there was always like always some older people who knew horror stories about peatlands and everybody who's not familiar to peatlands has probably heard about bog bodies and uh, like that's that's what you come across that that's what you see right and so many people are really afraid of these areas and like if you if you think of a, a movie like lord of the rings for example when 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 Frodo and Sam are are crossing these these swamps, which are basically a type of peatland, and then that's where the evil parts are, right? That's where they where where dead bodies float in the water, and uh, and all these lights attract them, and they try to basically kill them, and uh, that's what that's how people learn what peatlands are dangerous areas. Yeah. So it, it's actually fascinating. And if you start studying them, you you, st- you also get to see the really cool sides of peatlands, how beautiful and magnificent, colorful, lots of interesting biodiversity, um, lots of really nicely adapted species, which only occur in these areas. It's a fascinating world and it's beautiful to walk in. Yeah, definitely. Um, my background in my research is working with harvested peatlands and that was like my first introduction to peatlands so I was like man this is just like a dirt field (laughs) (laughs) so it took me a little while and a couple visits to more pristine areas to really like I guess catch the bog fever a little bit and be like okay no these are really really cool ecosystems really beautiful and I guess doing this podcast just learning how meaningful they are to people that's been really neat as well um, yeah, and like this is also like if you live in a in a quiet in a in a in a in a country which is a little bit dense populated, as for example the Netherlands. Like in the past, we, the Netherlands was really rich in in bogland and a lot of peatlands fen systems as well. But much has been drained and much has has been um, excavated also, and uh, and and it. Not not necessarily in Netherlands that it still happens, but in other European countries, but also in the in the U.S. and Canada, um, it it happens quite a lot. And then I'm only talking about northern peatlands. Um, um, southern peatlands are a little bit of a of a of a um, yeah. I'm turning a blind blind eye to them a little bit. I'm not so familiar. I've never visited also, but I've heard like and I'm I'm reading quite a lot in these these. Asian peatlands are also there is a lot of damage done to these uh, to these areas, and that's what generally people see. And um, damaged areas, not so interesting, bleak, and uh, not 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 so nice as the real pristine areas. And uh, but once you, if you have the opportunity to go and visit a pristine site, it's a marvel. It's it's fantastic. It's beautiful. Yeah, maybe later we'll have to talk about um, some of the work in Europe going on. So far, my guests have been in North America, so you're the the token European so far. But <laughs> um, I would like to ask you a little bit about plants and peatlands. Like I said before, I'm a little bit of a plant dummy. So um, I guess this will be good for 
the audience who may also not know very much about plants. They'll probably know more about plants than I do, but maybe not know as much about peatland plants. Um, but if you could just give a little bit of an overview um, of the plants just generally in peatlands and why different plants grow in different peatlands. And we'll just, from the offset, just know that we're talking about Northern peatlands. Yeah, that, and wow, that is a very, very difficult question. So I'm really, where to start really? And because um, there are so many different types of peatlands and generally like the, 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 the um, how do you say that the definition of, a, of what a peatland is, is if there's like at least 30 centimeters of, of organic soil. So an undecomposed plant material. And uh, generally, that's it. It can start from a, from a reed marsh, for example, which invades a, a, a lake, and the lake grows over, and uh, and uh, it's completely filled with reed, and that starts decomposing a little bit, and you get like this organic layer. And once it then starts going, then you then you um, can get sphagnum mosses, for example, uh, um, invading these areas. And once that happens. Um, whole succession starts uh, kicking in like these these um, these peat mosses are very much known for their um, function as ecological engineers so they start acidifying the area they also start holding the water really well so then the system becomes really anoxic so actually causing um, decomposition to even slow down more then um, also, the, these peat mosses, um, they excrete, they have, a, they exhibit an enormous cation exchange capacity by which they actually take in cations, for example, um, ammonium or calcium or magnesium, potassium, and they exchange them for a H plus, which acidifies the area even much and even more. And that causes um, other plants not to grow in them anymore because they can't deal with these acid conditions. So you get a lot of you get this invasion of sphagnum going going on and added to that like sphagnum mosses are very difficult to decompose because they they come they they contain very um difficult to to deal with um cell structures cell wall structures um, which are very difficult for microbes to decompose and so you get this built up of of of, of material and like in the past it's in europe but um up to 14 meters, sometimes even deeper peats have, have been developed. Um, I've heard of stories in Japan of peatlands which have been like 60, even 80 meters deep. Um, so that's uh, incredible. Um, yeah, that's kind of mind blowing. <laughs> yeah. And, but so there's different, there's many, many different types of peatlands. Um, some, some never make it to be, become a raised bog and a raised bog is generally like ombotrophic. It's fed by rainwater. It's, it's actually elevated out of the landscape a little bit um, because of that, that growth of the organic material. But you also have uh, peatlands which are uh, still under influence of, uh, of, of solidigenous water. So water that has been in contact with, uh, with 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 this with mineral rich soils so they're a little bit more nutrient rich and all like that whole spectrum from really rich fence to ombotrophic bogs everything in between there's and every little system or every system has its 
own unique composition of species. Some species are nice, are really developed uh, for these really minerotrophic um, and or, or even ombotrophic situations where there's hardly any nutrients, very acid. But other species um, can only thrive in in very nutrient-rich conditions. And uh, and then if you if you're lucky and you work in an area which is large enough, then then some of these peatlands have that have all these different types of peatlands. So in in complexes, in on maybe ten by ten square kilometers or twenty by twenty square kilometers, and so you can you can get into like one peatland uh, or one peatland complex can can contain many of these different systems with their unique um, vegetations and. Yeah, it's actually fascinating. Yeah, I, I guess in Europe, your peatlands are, are, well, they're not intact. A lot of them aren't intact anymore. And so you have smaller patches, whereas in North America or places like Siberia, you get huge landscapes of them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, sorry for setting you up with such a, a large and difficult <laughs> question that nobody can answer. But if you would like to go through maybe a couple of your favorite plants. Yeah, of course. <laughs> well, I've already mentioned sphagnum. You can't ignore sphagnum if you work in a peatland. It's, uh, but it's not the most, well, they're beautiful mosses and, uh, um, and they're all like that. The fascinating thing is, is that they're all different. And it, like you, it's a PhD by itself to get into uh, in, to get into all these different mosses. I'm always amazed when when there's people who know so much about sphagnum identification. Sorry, sphagnum is is it the species or is that the genus? Well, that's a genus. That that's a genus, and then you have well. It depends on who you ask, how many, how many sphagnum species you, you have, because they're splitters and lumpers. Um, I always tend to say to students, there's, a, there's about 70 species, um, but that might be ridiculously underestimated. And I'm, I'm always amazed if there's people who know so much about, uh, about uh, the, the identification of species. I have some Finnish colleagues who, like, they're, they're basically um that they're basically uh walking floras when when you're in the field with these people they know so much like i hardly hit the tip of the iceberg i know i i know if, i know my species but i need help very often and the, but they're they're beautiful sphagnum mosses um but what i really like most in in the area where i work is um is Andromeda polyfolia, which is bog rosemary, and so it has this uh, this this um, long shaped leaf, and uh, it it has a fascinating capacity to to curl its leaf when it when it becomes really dry, and it's also a little bit um, it has a lot of hairs on the underside, and uh, and so it looks a little bit grayish, and when so when the bog becomes really dry. It starts curling its leaf, so actually to prevent water loss, which is I find it always fascinating. All the adaptations which plants exhibit to actually deal with environmental circumstances. But the but the really beautiful thing is that it has this nicely um, pinkish bell bell shaped flower, 
and when when you're in the in in a bog and it's and it's flowering it's 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 beautiful color another species which i really like is bog myrtle uh, mirica gale which um and and I like that species not not particular because it belongs on a, on on a, on a, on a non-botrophic bog which I like most and where I where I um, work on most actually, but it's a species which smells so nice like it has these um, it has these these um, oil glands and if you walk through these bushes they're generally growing in in a little bit more nutrient rich areas always on the sides of of peatlands. Um, the, the, the Swedes have called that the lag zone, so the, the, the sides of, uh, of, of peatlands. And it, so it has these oil glands by which it made the smell is really beautiful. And the cool thing is actually that it also has a, a, a nitrogen fixing uh, actinobacteria in its, uh, in its roots by which it actually is, a, is able to fix its own nitrogen. Uh, so with the symbiosis with a, with a microbe, it can actually um, deal with very nutrient poor areas as well. Okay, we just mentioned something called nitrogen fixation, which is a process that allows certain bacteria to take nitrogen gas from the atmosphere and fix it into nitrogen that can be used for plants to grow. And this is especially important for bogs because they get their water and nutrients from rain, which usually doesn't have very much nitrogen. So these nitrogen fixing bacteria in bogs are super important to allow these peatlands to grow, and without them, then they'd be limited by the lack of nitrogen. So pretty cool. And what also is really cool for the for the people who like who like to drink beer, is that in the past, like in the in the old days, Mirikagala was actually also used to uh, to make water more tasteful, and it was used in brewing in the brewing process. And it's a really nice particular um, particular um, taste, to, uh, which makes your beer really, really nice. So if you're a home brewer and you're ever in a peatland and you come across this species, take some home and put it in your put it in your brewing kettle. It's gonna like no guarantees, but uh, if you're a good brewer, it, it it might be really nice. What do you? Do you just take some leaves or flour, or what do you? Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not so sure what what is it like. I am I am not a home brewer, um, but I I guess you take the leaves or the catkins. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, probably the leaves because that's where the oil is in as well. Okay, for all you home brewers out there, I don't know if I have any of you listening, but in case you are, or if you're interested in that, you can use the leaves and catkins of bog myrtle to flavor your beer. So the leaves and the catkins. I did a bit of a deep dive into the internet and found some really interesting blogs by some homebrewers who were looking into like uh, medieval uh, brewing. And that was really fascinating. People are cool. They have really cool hobbies. Yeah, so these are, and there's many, many more species which I really like. One of what is also really interesting is uh, is the is um, sundews like Drosera genus, and uh, I'm not sure if like yeah you have them in the in the US as well and in Canada. Um, it's a, it's actually um, well uh, an insect eating plant and uh, so a flesh eating meat eating plant <laughs> um, sounds more. Um, scary than it really is because it's really really small maybe five centimeters in in height 
but it has these uh, also these oil glands on the on on the on on, on its uh, on its leaves, uh, and it produces a little um, dew bells or droplets, lots of them. And when 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 insects fly into them, they get stuck, and then they actually get like um, absorbed, and that's how the plant gets its nitrogen and phosphorus. So that's why it's named sundew because it makes little dews. Yeah, it makes little droplets on the on the leaves, like m- many of them. Yeah, I've seen pictures of them, but I've never put the two and two together. That's very fun. If <laughs> if you're working like, because I have a plant removal experiment in one of the in 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 a, in a Swedish peatland, and so I remove plants selectively. And if you come across that species, then um, if you if you touch it, your fingers get a little bit stucky, sticky. And then all the other species, like the grasses which you clip, they stick in your fingers. It's really nasty. And but it, yeah, but it's still very. Uh, it's a cool. It's it's cool to have it around. In 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 Canada, you also have quite a lot of these uh, pitcher plants, um, which uh, which grow in bogs. Also, these these plants also capture insects to get their nutrients. So these are all adaptations actually to to grow under these very very nutrient poor conditions. So plants have plants have evolved all these kind of mechanisms to 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 cope with these situations, and so some species have developed an insect eating habit. For the insect eating ones, kind of like the bog myrtle, do they also grow on the sides of peatlands, or are they more mixed in? No, the, 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 many of these insect eating plants grow grow also in the middle of, of, of the peatlands. I come, I come across all these sundews uh, in, in my plots and that's like in the middle of a, of a number trophic peatland. Uh, it grows in, like it has this, it has their roots uh, growing intermixed with the, with the sphagnum mosses. So it's basically sits on top of a sphagnum moss and then builds this little rosette and, um, and then sometimes if it if it flowers, it has a really nice um, little um, like maybe ten centimeters, five to ten centimeters high flower stalk, and then also a little uh, white um, bell-shaped flower going uh, which which hangs down. It's also really beautiful, but it flowers only um, very very short. So you have to be really lucky to see that flower then. Well, if you if you're if you, if you are often enough in a bog, then then you, you will you will definitely find it. If you go to a European bog in, in July August, you you can see uh, you can see sundews flowering. Wow. And probably the same in the U.S. and Canada. Yeah. I mean, I say yeah. I don't actually know, but <laughs> <laughs> probably. <laughs> Likely. Yeah, that's very fun. Um, are there any others that you want to give an honorable mention to? Yeah, so there's also kind of, kind of a lot of um, um, species which which not necessarily belong to the particular to a peatland habitat, but at least to the to 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 the whole ecosystem um, around it, um, which are which are very nice to taste also because there's a there's a lot of blueberries and bilberries growing in the forests around them, um, which every time when I walk into uh, the, the, the site where I work, which is the Sturhomosa National Park in the, in the south of Sweden, um, it, can, it, can take up, it can take a bit longer if you, if you, if you work with me, because then 
every time if I come across a blueberry bush, um, um, takes a little bit time to fill my pockets. And uh, so I, I really love to scavenge around, take my time and load myself with blueberries. Um, there's also a lot of, like if you're lucky enough, there's uh, you can find cloudberries, um, which is uh, the, the scientific name, the Latin name is uh, Rubis camemoris. Um, and like it's seen as a as a as a delicacy in the, in in Scandinavian countries. Um, it it hardly occurs in 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 the Netherlands. I've actually never came across it in the, in in the in the bog remnants which we have here. But in in the Scandinavian countries, it's actually it's a it's a little bit of a treat. Finns go go real they they go bananas uh, about it, and it's 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 um, it's it's a it's a very famous treat there. Um, I find the taste a bit particular, like it's a little bit sour, acidy, but you need, it's, yeah, you need to, you need to love it to, to <laughs> really like it. And I'm, I'm not yet sure, probably with a, with a lot of sugar, but if you ask a Finn, they would, they would think I'm crazy because they love it. Also the sweets, they really like it. I see it in the supermarket quite a lot with uh, like they make they make jams from it as well. And it's ridiculously expensive. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever had a cloudberry before. You should you should come to you should you should try. My advisor is Swedish and oh, yeah, I yeah. should ask him. <laughs> yeah. So when we when we were on holidays last year in uh, in in the north of Sweden, there's like so you see you see people walking and like they park their they park their car um just on the road next to next to a peatland and they and many people then walk in with their uh, with their little buckets and then they basically start collecting uh, cloudberries quite a lot so it's it's also it's quite a nice um um plant it has a, it's a, it has a very big leaf actually um dark green the leaf is about like it's a little bit um, not really not not finger shaped, but a little bit um, it, it it resembles maybe the the um, like the the leaf on a Canadian flag a little bit, and uh, darkish green, and then um, there's going like in summer there is a beautiful um, star shaped white flower on top, and from like one flower, and in that that cloudberry grows and uh, that's a, like when the cloudberry grows it's a little bit um yellow brownish when it when it starts developing and and it becomes when it's when it's when it's ready it's a little bit mushy and uh, that's when you eat it and uh, yeah it's as i said it's a particular taste but uh, um if you yeah in in the side where i work they're not so common so I'm always very um, happy when I find it, and I can have my students taste some. Get your students who are not from Sweden and Finland to see if they like them. Yeah, many of many of my students are are either Dutch or um, when I was living in the U in the UK, they were. Um, I, I still have a few uh, UK PhD students. I actually find it a bit funny to say I have because they're not my. Um, I don't own them. I work with them. That's, <laughs> yeah. Let's say let's say it like that. So I work with some PhD students from the UK, and then yeah, um, I've never came across uh, cloudberries in the UK. Also, I mean, them they they must be there.
likely in Scotland. Yeah. Does Labrador tea grow in in peatlands where you work? It's laid in Palustra, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, but um, not so much um, not so much in in the in the sites where I work, but. Uh, yeah, in these lag zones, so the, the surrounding areas, uh, the, 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 the more nutrient-richer areas surrounding umbotrophic peatlands, a little bit richer fen systems, we have them as well, yeah. I guess I just bring it up because that's one of the other few plants that I can recognize in oh, yeah. the peatlands where is, I work. Is that, is that not also a plant which, uh, which, which people take into sauna to actually get a nicer... Um, smell in the sauna thing i don't know about that i don't think sauna is quite as big in canada but mm. it is used as a tea i know a lot of oh, yeah. all right um, indigenous folks use it um for medicinal qualities because it does have like oh i'm not sure if i can really quote this i i want to say like they use it for like childbirth pains and things like that so if you take okay, a lot of yeah. it then it has some some benefits for that um but then i have lab mates that just take a little bit for some tea and it's quite nice. Okay, Labrador tea. In this conversation, I was not aware that there is something called marsh Labrador tea and bog Labrador tea. So marsh Labrador tea, latum palestre, um, that is sometimes distilled into essential oils. Probably it's used in saunas sometimes. Um, I found on the internet that maybe it repels mosquitoes. So you could try that. Um, Bog Labrador tea, which is what I think I'm more familiar with, is rhododendron, oh geez, Groenlandicum, that is quite the scientific name, formerly known as Latum Groenlandicum, um, and I think there was another scientific name that it used to be named, known as, um, so it's kind of changing around in classifications, um, but this bog Labrador tea is what I think I'm most familiar with. You can use it to make a tea, so you take the leaves, you dry them out, um, yeah steep some hot water. Um, but you need to be careful because if you have too concentrated of a tea, then it can really mess you up. And by really mess you up, I mean you'll probably be vomiting. So be careful. Enjoy your Labrador tea. Yeah, that's what I also read from uh, the, the plant which I mentioned earlier, the, the, the bog myrtle, the, the Mirica gale. That's like, it, it also was used for pains and stomach pains in the past and uh, but yeah, I'm not sure if it really, like it helps if it helps, right? And yeah, I guess we have stronger pain relief medicine now, but. Exactly, yeah. Mostly yeah. I just like the name Bog Myrtle. I think that's a fun name. Yeah, it's, it sounds nice. Yeah. It's all, it, it is actually, it's a, it, yeah, it's also not a, it, it's, it's, it's a beautiful, um, uh bush if you if you if you look at it and and also the the catkins of that species are really uh, are really nice to 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 look at and as i said it smells really nice what is a catkin it's the the little um um is that not the english name catkin i mean the, it might be i just <laughs> it's the, um um it's basically the flower of these uh, of these species and it produces quite a lot of pollen as well Okay. You see it on trees quite often. Okay. Yeah, I guess I'm the wrong person to ask because I don't know plant anatomy. 
I actually have a similar background to you in undergrad. I was uh, not planning to be a vet, but planning to be a medical doctor. So I I eventually graduated in environmental science and I was supposed to take a plant physiology course, but because I'd already taken like human physiology, I didn't have to take the plant version. (laughs) So I ended up with a lot of no knowledge about the human body and very little about plants. So I think that's just a funny thing. But what what made you change to what made you uh, become a peatland researcher then? Uh, I guess just opportunity because I did water quality research in like temperate ecosystems. So and I okay, guess Utah yeah. is arid, but then did some work in France as well, and then was looking into grad programs. And there was some yeah. work up north that sounded interesting to me, and it's primarily focused on water quality. Um, yeah but looking at peatlands and how peatland um, disturbance affects downstream water quality. So still in like the water quality vein, but I do a fair amount of work in peatlands. And so, yeah. But is this not true for many of us that uh, Mm -hmm. it's like, it it is all about opportunity. When I, when I graduated for my, for my masters, I had no clue really. And what I wanted to do, and to like I just I, I I just graduated. I did some uh, I did some work on on competition between sphagnum mosses, and then I opened a newspaper a few days later, and there was an actual job advertisement to work as a PhD in Wageningen University, under guidance of uh, Matthijs Schout and Jules Limpens to look at uh, at at competition between sphagnum mosses, and I'm like, oh my god, this is this is the job I. I just graduated with as a, as a master student, why not apply? And uh, so, yeah, and uh, so I started doing my PhD and it, it wasn't that I planned it, it's just passed by. And, and that's, that's always the same with, with postdocs. It was always a job opportunity came by and I, and I jumped on it and, yeah and this is where this is where i am this is where you are now and like i know so many of the familiar stories and people just yeah it's opportunity and you need to take the opportunities yeah definitely yeah kind of amazing where uh, life uh, throws you if you would have asked younger me where if i would have asked younger me where and I would never have imagined that my career would have brought me to live in Switzerland for five years, live in the UK for another three years. So I've seen the world, like uh, um, at least Europe, and I've traveled in the, in the US also quite a bit and um, Canada. But uh, I was also very lucky to uh, to 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 be able to work in a in a European funded project where I actually. Um, I visited 60 peatlands across Europe in uh, in, in t- over two years' time, in from 2000, uh, 2011 and 2012, and that gave me so much insights in in the diversity and um, and broadness of of the types of peatlands across Europe. So I've I've traveled all the way from 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 bogs peatlands in in in, in Ireland. All the way to the to the Russian border, Finnish Karelia, and from famous Abisko National Park uh, peatlands uh, 
all the way to the to the to the north of Italy in the Italian Alps, and everything in between. Um, and yeah, so I've seen quite a lot of different peatlands across Europe, and they're all so different, and they're all so fascinating. And when you come, what what is actually also really nice about that that you meet so many different people who are busy with taking care of these lands and trying to restore them, try to manage them. The most fascinating stories here, people who are who grew up next to a next to a peatland and there were plans to excavate the area and uh, they 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 really um they wanted to conserve these areas and so some people have bought they have bought peatlands as a, and now own them as a private private landowner and I'm no and I know of an Irish guy who bought a peatland and now opens it up also for uh, for for researchers it's a, it's an area called Shara Vogue Bog and it's it, it's a fascinating area and it, it was almost lost was it not for this guy called Patrick to actually buy it and uh, and and protect it and there are so many other fascinating stories of, of people who, who spent their time in, in, in trying to conserve and, and, uh, and protect these areas. Yeah, that's, I think protecting peatlands is really interesting to me, I guess from a North American perspective, and I guess a Canadian perspective, because we don't have that many peatlands in the US, not like Canada does. But in Canada, there's so much up north that I think either Canadians aren't aware of them or it's just kind of like this idea like, oh, there's so many of them. So who cares if we destroy a few here and there? And maybe that's a, a gross generalization. But in Europe, there's so few already. What is your take on peatland conservation there? Is it is there a big movement or? Yeah, there is a there is a big movement. And the, I think that the, the difference is indeed that like the, the 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 history of using peatlands has been a bit longer in Europe. Um, it's also, yeah, the scale is definitely now a little bit different. Um, in Canada, at least, what I what I know from from the colleagues which I work with, uh, it, there's a lot of issues with mining and the mining industry and uh, and also. Um, forestry um, on, on peatlands. That's also an, an issue in, in, in Scandinavian countries. But like back in the day here in the Netherlands, a lot has been uh, excavated for, um, for fuel. And um, also in, uh, in Ireland, still going on. Um, household fueling, quite a lot in, uh, in, in, in Ireland, but now also horticulture. Um, Sphagnum appears is very good. It, it, it is very good in water holding. So it can take up to 20, sometimes even more, um, up to 20 times its its own weight in water. So it's actually very good to, to put in potting soils. And there is a big movement also now in the Netherlands to actually try to, um, to go peat free. Um, problem is that it's still really expensive and people... People make decisions with their with their with their wallets very often, right? Um, but there is a movement in the Netherlands. There is also like one of my colleagues where I work now at Radboud University. He's uh, he's he's he, 
he's very passionate about trying to um, um, trying to limit um, the amount of carbon dioxide and uh, and methane which is released from uh, from from former peat soils, which is now used for um, for for um, uh, grazing cattle and uh, agricultural uh, practices in the Netherlands and. For that, you actually need to lower the water table a little bit to, to, to drive your tractor on it. But because there's a lot of, like if you drain peatlands, you actually, you get the, you get the oxygen in the, in the soil and decomposition processes start kicking in and you're, you're, losing, um, you're losing carbon dioxide. And so you also have a lot of problems with land subsidence. And uh, so his aim is actually now to, to, to use techniques um, to, to, to bring in water again, to actually um, uh, to, to prevent carbon dioxide uh, uh, to be lost from these areas. But also, um, and that's what we're working on in, at Radboud University in general, actually, to, to, to get towards a more sustainable land use in the Netherlands, um, where we're actually going to look at former peatlands a little bit more as an opportunity to start um, using in a different way, like using the lands for, for, for example, um, growing taifa and uh, growing reed, and use these kind of um, um, use these kind of plants for alternative um, uh, alternative ways. Um, to, for example, biomass production, and uh, but also for, for, for example, roof buildings or all kinds of other alternative ways in using REIT um, uh, to, 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 to actually make sure that, to actually start thinking of these, these lands as something useful instead of something useless. The drained peatlands in the Netherlands, are they used for agriculture right now or are they just dormant? Yeah, very much. Like the the in in especially in the in the in the north and the west of our country, uh, many of these pre, of these these uh, previously um, excavated peatlands are now um, drained, and uh, there's a there's a little bit of a clay layer on top of it, and on that like there's there um, we we have grass growing, and that's where um, many farmers uh, have their cows, their cattle. And so they're they're actually used for agricultural purposes. Um, yeah, as I said, like um, the to 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 drive your equipment on these lands, you need to drain them, and with that draining, you 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 actually the land subsides even more, and you get you, all that carbon dioxide disappears. And and these are only lands. So this is this is an this is a problem particularly. For the Netherlands, but also a little bit in, in it's also in Germany uh, a big problem. Um, the Meyer Center in Greifswald, very famous, is also um, uh, much working on 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 sustainable uses of peatlands in in these kind of uh, in 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 under these kind of conditions, and also using, for example, uh, sphagnum uh, um, horticulture, like to grow sphagnum actively. Um, so I know that my colleague here in, in at Radboud University, together with people in Greifswald, they're also looking on towards uh, which of these sphagnum mosses is actually best for um, fast growth, 
under which kind of conditions, which kind of hydrological conditions, which kind of water quality. Um, sometimes the water quality is very poor. So there is a lot of research going on uh, here also with students and uh, with PhD students. Um, and so there's some concerted uh, um, research uh, between the Netherlands, uh, uh, Germany, Belgium, also uh, the UK. So there is a lot of stuff going on. And uh, yeah, my own research is much more focused on, on natural processes in peatlands. How do plants, how do plants actually function? What is the role in, 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 of different plant types, for example, on how, uh, how ecosystem processes manifest actually? Yeah, I was actually looking at your uh, Google Scholar profile before this. Um, and I saw some, I guess you weren't necessarily first author, but some that you were a co-author on about like water table manipulations or like different temperature and things like that. And I'm not sure if you were just looking at that generally, or if you're interested in that with the changing climate or both. Yeah. So th this is one of the things which in like my, my research is, you can characterize it basically as a, as a sort of experimental peatland ecology. So what I'm trying to do all the time is, um, is manipulate things, manipulate environmental conditions um, like the water table. But also um, when, I was, when I was a PhD student, we worked quite a lot with, uh, with, with uh, nutrient uh, additions. Um, people in, the, in, in Canada have done that as well, quite a lot. Um, but also with uh, nowadays, I'm, uh, I'm also trying to figure out how, uh, how drought, for example, is, is affecting uh, ecosystem processes. And especially like 2018, 2019 were really dry years in, the, in, in Europe. Um, and actually, we expect this to happen more often. Um, what kind of Im impacts does that have on the vegetation in peatlands, on the microbial communities in peatlands, but and how they interact, and what does that do with, for example, carbon dioxide fluxes and methane fluxes? How does that, how do these plant microbe interactions shape ecosystem processes? So this is one one part, and 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 another part which I was which I became really interested in which I still find really fascinating is after drought, um, a, what, happen, what, what starts to happen quite a lot in Europe is that, uh, that, that a lot of these peatlands catch fire. And um, with, this, with this fire, you're actually losing quite a lot of uh, carbon, which, is which has been sequestered for maybe over 30, 300 years. So you easily can lose um, 30 centimeters of your of your peatland, um, and if if a peatland starts smoldering, um, even probably even more. And if you think of every millimeter of a peatland, is about a is about a, 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 a 10 years growth, then like um, no, like about 30 centimeters is is about 300 years. So one millimeter is about a year, right? And um, so that that puts things into perspective. Like if we are starting to 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 tweak that that climate button, all kinds of cascading effects are going to happen. We we lose quite a lot of carbon dioxide by 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 the drought by itself.
But then if, if there is going to be a fire on top of that, we even lose more. And it takes quite a lot of time for the peatland to restore into its, uh, into, its, into its original state. And then I'm not even talking about these, uh, these permafrost uh, peatlands, which you guys have in, uh, in, in Canada. And there's some, quite some famous research uh, has been happening there. And like, because in Canada, you have a lot of these, um, of these, these forested peatlands. And uh, if they catch fire, um, same as in Siberia, and then uh, large, very large areas can 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 start burning. That's maybe the good thing about about Europe that we we do not have so many large areas anymore. So if a peatland catches fire, um, you don't lose so many areas. If if a peatland in in, the, in Canada or Siberia catches fire, you can like that's that yeah. We've seen what can what can happen. Can it can be disastrous? Yeah, I'm interested in. Have you looked into how, I guess, resilient the peatlands are to fire, or how quickly they grow back? I guess the well, one of as a, one one of my PhD students in Southampton, uh, Harry Shepard, is actually working on this this at the moment. Uh, back in 2018, there was a big fire in the, in the Manchester region. And the Staley Bridge Estate, sometimes uh, also referred to as the Satterward Moors. And uh, there are about a uh, hundred hectares of peat uh, or a thousand hectares of peat actually burned down, um, about 30 centimeters. And uh, what we have been doing there is looking at how fast is the, so how fast post fire is the, is the plant community recovering? But also, how fast is the microbial community recovering, and how what does that mean for um, for ecosystem processes like carbon uptake? And what we actually found is that uh, the microbial community is actually pretty resilient, and it it, it 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 bounces back quite fast. Plant community has actually taken quite a longer time, and uh, like what we also see now is that uh, not necessarily peatland species um, start in, invading into these areas. And uh, so one of the things which we are then, which we are also looking into um, is can we use soil inoculation to, uh, to, to, to bring back the, the, the plant community a bit faster? Um, this is a technique which, uh, which has been developed in, uh, in, in Wageningen University by, by, by a PhD student who's now um, He's now also he's now a postdoc uh, at at the at the same group where he where he graduated Jasper Webbs, and um, so what they, what what these guys showed in grasslands is that if you inoculate a former agricultural area with a grassland inoculate or a heatland inoculate, you can actually direct succession into the into the into the state you wish. Um, what we try to do now is also bring bring that a level higher to also see if we can then fast track the the the, uh, the fast track the recovery of ecosystem processes. Can we actually after um, a, per, uh, a perturbation and that can be fire, but it can also be drought. Can we actually fast track the recovery of the of the very important ecosystem services? like for example carbon sequestration and it's actually the, the, the first results which we have now are quite promising the problem now is 
to to upscale these things because uh, you can what we what I generally tend to do is uh, work on a square meter um, area and then you, you can easily then take uh, take take soil from an intact site and spread that uh, thinly over in one 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 by one square meter try that over hectares so that's going to be much more difficult the Canadians have been really like in the in the past, like in, in the 90s, and their their very very um, cool research has come out of uh, out of several labs in the in in um, in Canada, um, probably led by uh, by by people like Lynne Rochefort, and uh, where they where they actually um, used a mulching technique where they where they used straw to to actually prevent uh, sites which have been excavated in the past to prevent from drying so they actually put a lot little layer of, of of straw on it and from there the peatland can start recovering because they don't with with that straw on top they, you actually prevent uh, water loss from uh, from evaporation and evapotranspiration also um it's a little bit of a similar kind of technique but what we're trying to do now is using soil inoculates from intact peatlands and um, yeah the problem there is the end where where can you then to to upscale this and uh, to to actually do this tech to to actually have this technique you need intact peatlands so you are basically gonna gonna excavate another peatland to rest to restore another and this is then this is where it becomes so interesting then to start to start working with my colleague here in 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 uh, in Radboud University where they actually uh, start growing sphagnum as a as an agricultural crop and so we can actually then also try to use these kind of areas where sphagnum is farmed to use as donor inoculates to restore peatlands in the future that would be really awesome yeah, that would be really cool. I've heard that sphagnum is really hard to grow in, like, if you want to grow it, it's hard to grow. Uh, yeah. Uh, if, yeah, it, yes and no. Like, if you, I, I generally take mesocosms, and uh, so I, I go into the field, and then I take a, I, I dig out a bucket, and I take the whole peat core, including the sphagnum mosses, and uh, if you then, if we we actually make a sort of uh, um, growing medium, which which is very low in uh, in nutrients, but it has all the all the necessary nutrients, uh, which uh, basically mimics a little bit of a rainwater solution. If you use that, you can keep sphagnum alive uh, quite quite a lot. And there's what I read. There's a really nice guy uh, which which works in an associated. Uh, um, um, research group uh, at, at the university where I'm where I'm now. I'm just going to mention his name because I think he really likes that. His, his name is Adam Cox, and Cox, and and he is he's so passionate about growing sphagnum mosses. And uh, when I when I came working uh, at the department two years ago, um, as a welcome present, he gave me a bucket of a little a little uh, glass um, vial or a little glass pot with sphagnum mosses in it. And I should keep it alive, and it's still alive. Wow. And uh, but he he makes it. Uh, he has this growing sphagnum as a hobby, 
So whenever I, I need to keep Sphagnum alive, I go and talk to Adam. He's the guy. He's the guy. Yeah, it seems that, I don't know, that peeling restoration is a, a, a tricky thing to do, but that's really cool that you guys are working really hard on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky... It's a tricky thing to do, but it's also a very interesting and necessary thing to do. And there are so many different researchers across the world which, which make it their goal to really do this. And to, um, probably like the Greisold Meyer Center leading that whole effort and obviously some groups in, in Canada as well. Um, maybe my scope is a little bit much like more uh, European. Um, but there's so much going on. And recently there is also like, I'm now part also of, a, of, a, of an international consortium with uh, like 27 uh, research groups in, in Europe. And we, we, we got funded uh, about 24 million euros, um, not only to, 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 to um, restore peatlands, but to restore wetlands. And the project is called Waterlands, um, led by, uh, by, by uh, University College Dublin. And um, so over the next five years, we're actually, there's a huge investment by the European Union um, to actually start looking at uh, success stories, but also failure stories on what is successful um, wetland restoration. So there's lots of stuff going on and it's also really necessary because if you think about the capacities um, to, to actually try to fight climate change, actually peatlands and uh, wetlands in general are, they are our natural allies because they, they, they are so efficient in storing carbon dioxide and putting it away for centuries that we would be stupid not to invest in these kind of techniques. And so we can, we can do quite a lot in trying to reduce our carbon footprint, which is necessary, obviously. But we should also be a little bit more careful in protecting our natural allies. And peatlands are always one of these forgotten treasures, which, which we actually should not forget. Like we're talking quite a lot about the tropical forests uh, to, to keep the, to, 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 to protect uh, to protect biodiversity, which is obviously necessary, but peatlands are so efficient in in they they punch much above their weight when it comes to carbon dioxide sequestration and locking it away for a long, long time. Definitely. Um, if you had a friend that wanted to know how they could get involved in peatlands protection conservation what would you what would be your advice to them yeah so and you at the beginning of of our chat you you said that you were referred to to me by the by the um, by the peatland ecr community um this this is a group of people which i like i wish i was a phd student at this time because this initiative is I think one of the greatest things what happened for peatland research in the past. Like there's a really nice group of enthusiastic people got together and said like, we need to do things differently. And um, <laughs> I once asked if I could join uh, some of their meetings and they, 
um, I'm not early career enough anymore, which is a pity, but also really cool that uh, that that these people they are so devoted to getting into action. And uh, um, so, if you're young and you want to get into peatland research and peatland conservation, get in touch with these people. And there's also um, there's also other initiatives uh, going on um, in, in uh, across the world with, with people who, who like to protect peatland. But I think like the peatland ECR is one of the first, uh, um, yeah, one of the first organizations, or if, if it is actually an organization, it's more of like a movement of people. Um, get in touch with them. They have a fabulous website as well. And uh, um, if you're a if you're a fanatic about peatlands, you can also donate to them, and they they actually fund quite a lot of. Uh, um, they have a thing called peat needs, and um, so that's where younger people who are who are who need, for example, wellies or a little bit of equipment to do their work. Um, they 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 finance these kind of things, and they they need your donation. Just a little bit of advertisement. Yeah, that's a great shout out to PDCR. They're a great group of folks. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we are getting up to the hour now. So I guess the final question that I love to ask is, what is your favorite peatland? Now that you've told us that you've traveled near and far, <laughs> which one is your favorite? Yeah. Oh, that is such a like, I've, I've thought about that question so hard. and. But I'm still I'm I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give you the obvious answer. Um, I just fell so much in love with the Sturmosa National Park, and this is an area which I I came across by accident because I was reading a paper by Urban Gunnarsson when I was doing that uh, that that large uh, uh, campaign working in uh, in in to try to map the vegetation of uh, European peatlands. And I've read about an, an, an area which which is which was in one of Urban's papers, and uh, it was called Sturmos. So I opened the map um, of Sweden and looked at Sturmos, and then I'm like, oh my god, there are so many different Sturmos in, in 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 Sweden. But in Swedish, it just means big bulk. And, um, <laughs> I didn't know that. And. Uh, so, but there was also a, a, an, an area and like a national park, which was called Sturmos, just south of Jönköping and uh, a bit east, like two hours east from uh, from Göteborg. Um, so I went there and I met the most fascinating and open um, group of, of rangers. And they opened their research facilities and their, their uh, accommodation facilities to me. So that was a massive help, but also the area is so beautiful. Like it's a huge area with with it's the largest uh, peatland complex uh, south of they they. It's also they advertise themselves as the largest peatland expanse south of Lapland. Um, so it's 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 an immense area, and it covers all kinds of like rich fen area and. Uh, uh, um, uh, b bulk land, but also a large lake, and uh, there's like um, 
it harbors a lot of like cranes. Like if you go there in April, uh, maybe the beginning of May, it's full of cranes. Um, it has moose. Um, it's just a fascinating area. So the answer is uh, is Sturomosa National Park. But that said, there's like if you are ever in Europe and you want to get like a taste of the most beautiful landscape and, and particularly bog landscape and the Endla Nature Reserve and the Menikjerve uh, peatland in Estonia is fascinating. Like then there is also a tower in the, in the middle of, of the Menikjerve bog. And if you go and stand on the top, you can see all the, you can see the different coloring, um, which is actually the different colors of the different sphagnum mosses. And I always use that picture of that, uh, of, of, of Menikjerve in my lectures when, when I'm talking about zonation of sphagnum mosses. It goes from the, from, from the blue of the water or actually blackish or blackish blue of the water. And then you like when when the sphagnum starts kicking in, you can see the bright um, green until very dark green, and then it becomes a bit yellow from sphagnum cuspidatum, and then you have the the red of sphagnum magellanicum, and the deeper red of sphagnum rubellum, and then it becomes brownish from sphagnum fuscum, and it's all nicely zonated, and you can see that the most like the best way to to see that or the best site to go is the Manikjärvenes uh, bog in the Entla Nature Reserve in, in Estonia. Fascinating area. All right, I'm going to have to um, ask you for those pictures because I do share some pictures on Twitter and Instagram with followers of the pod. Oh yeah, I can send you some. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right, huge thanks to Bjorn for chatting with me. He was a good sport even when I asked super broad questions. I learned a lot from his expertise on plants and microbes and interesting things about peatlands in the Netherlands and Europe generally, and I hope we cross paths someday soon. As mentioned at the end of the episode, you can follow the pod on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at for Pete's sake pod, and I generally post photos from guests, which definitely helps me appreciate the beauty and diversity of peatlands. And in this case, I'll be posting some pictures of some of the plants that we talked about. So if you're interested in plant ID, go check that out. Music for this episode is from Blue Dot Sessions, courtesy of the Free Music Archive. And podcast art is by Dr. Yulia Burton. <laughs>